I invite you this morning, if you have your Bible, to find your way to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 and verse 13 through 17. Uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, it is a joy to have you with us, and you are always welcome. Uh, you can find the, the scripture on page 835 of your Blue Pew Bible, 835. And if you do not have a Bible, please feel free. I know this sounds funny. Even every time I say it, it sounds funny because we often don't get things without attachment. But seriously, if you do not have a Bible, take that Blue Bible. We'd rather you have a Bible than not and have God's Word in your possession. So please feel free to do that. Uh, just a couple things, if I can take a pastoral privilege here the last a couple minutes before we start. Uh, thank you very much last week for uh, the encouraging comments you had for my friend Brian. Uh, I, he was very encouraged to be here and preach. And some of you asked, Darren, you carry a notebook around. Uh, did Brian have any notes last week? I had that asked me several times. Friends, he had no notes up here whatsoever. So that bar went from like, whoa, I mean, it's like up here now. So he's really, really good. But he wanted to encourage you all to say he, he felt very much at home last week. Thank you for letting him preach and allow him to do that. He's been greatly encouraged by your encouragement to him. So thank you for that. If I can take just a second, and as a pastor, I've really, uh, I want to get these words right here, but uh, this coming Saturday uh, is not just our Foundations Conference, but this Friday and Saturday is also uh, a movie coming out that is under the guise of Christianity. And I want to just take a moment, if I may, before we start to speak to this. Uh, many of you have heard of the movie The Shack uh, that is in book and on movie. Friends, I am not saying don't go see it, but I am saying take great wisdom about how you see it. It is not a Christian book. It is not. Uh, there's actually about 15 to 20 essential things that they deny. Uh, I can't prevent you to see it, but I, in all pastoral wisdom, it would behoove us to, to really be careful about consuming that content. Our God is a definable God, and our God did not, the God the Father did not die with Jesus on the cross. I hope you know that. And there are several other things, and uh, so if you have questions about that, I'll put out something on, from the pastor this week, but I just encourage you, just because something has the name Christian to it does not mean it definitely is. And uh, I'll leave that to your conscience, but I, I do want to encourage you to really examine uh, whether we should see that or not at that point. So uh, Hollywood just lost some money, I'm sure, but God may have gained some glory, hopefully, at that point. Amen. God is good. All right. Well, let's get started this morning. I've really struggled with an introduction this week. And you know me, I love to jabber, I love to chat. But as we get into Mark chapter 2, and as my friend Brian led us through last week about the greatest treasure being the gospel, not healing necessarily, but spiritual healing, I really struggle with this because what good illustration is there to bring into the topic we're going to talk about? The verses before us are such a topic that are so, we say this phrase all the time, but what does it really mean? The topic before us is simply this. Are you a friend of sinners? Are you a friend of sinners? How many of you have heard that phrase before? Jesus is a friend of sinners. Have you used that phrase before? Many of you have. And we've done that rightfully because that's what the scripture says. But what does it mean that Jesus is a friend of sinners? But the question is, are you? Are we? Is our church a friend of sinners? Are we a place that people want to know about Christ? Do you spend time with people who don't know Jesus, whose life may be offensive to you and whose reputation may not be that sound and may be an embarrassment, even a scandal? Do you, do I, does our church love sinners, even care for sinners as we ought to? Are you a friend of sinners? Am I a friend of sinners? Are you and I like Jesus? And I had to ask myself those questions. I try, how do you transition that from an illustration to that? So I just had to ask those straight questions. Do we know that to be true? Because what we saw last week and what we are going to look at today, church, is what you might call the scandal of grace. 
Christ is reaching out to people that should not be reached out to in society. Maybe you know people like that. Many of you know that in certain parts and in certain parts of the country, there are still deep-seated uh, racist tones even in churches where, where people of other colors, if they were to intermingle, it would be seen as a sin. And that is, that, that is un, as unbiblical as it comes. We are all one faith, all one body. But are we friends of sinners? Because I even look at my own life and I say, well, I spend much less time with sinners than I ever thought I did. Even as a pastor, you realize how easy it is to care for the saints as I ought, but to spend so less time with sinners themselves, with people who don't know Christ. And I often find myself turning to Luke 18, 11, which says, God, I thank you I'm not like these other people, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And I, I may say in my heart, Lord, thank you. You know, God, I'm like, I'm good. I fast twice a week. I give tithes and I get it. But how much better would it be for me to pray like the tax collector, as we'll read about today in Luke 18, 13, who said, would not even I lift up my eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So I don't know, friends, if that is a question that you have, but I want to look at this today. What I want to say up front is we are not here to talk about politics and how this affects that. We are not here to talk about how this affects city planning policy or those types of things. But as, and it does affect those things. But as a Christian, spiritually speaking especially, how does this phrase, are you a friend of sinners, affect your life and mine? Because Isaiah 65, 5, Jesus said this, he said, or the spirit through uh, the prophet said this, he said, stand by yourself, come not near me, for I am holier than thou. Have you ever wondered where that phrase came from? Holier than thou? Here's your verse, Isaiah 65, 5. These are a smoke in my nose and a fire that burneth all the day. And I intentionally picked the old King James because of this fact, because God is prophesying through Isaiah against the people of Israel who were too holy to stand with the other people. They were literally holier than thou, if you will, to use that phrase. Friends, what we need to realize, what I need to realize is that we are in desperate need of mercy, and, and I am a forgiven sinner only through this amazing scandal of grace that we are going to see here in Mark. And that should lead me, like Jesus, to be a friend of sinners. Let me ask you again. Are you a friend of sinners today? Do you look for those who may not be of good reputation, even scandalous, to be, befriend them to become Christians and love them genuinely? And that's a big question because here's the big idea this morning. If you're visiting with us, the big idea is just the, the rifle shot thesis statement of the whole sermon. And absolutely, Christ was a friend of sinners. But often what is missed is that in the midst of that, he became a real friend and he summoned those friends to repent and believe the gospel. Friends, Jesus is a friend of sinners, but he's also an enemy of hypocrites. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and I am so grateful for this, and I pray you are too. He doesn't ask me to clean up myself before I come to him, and I hope you know that. When you came to Christ, he didn't say, oh, go do uh, 27,000 laps around the church when running. That would be impressive, by the way. He just said, come as you are, come to me and repent and believe the gospel. So how do we become friends of sinners? Well, we're going to look at this in three ways. Jesus shows us in this passage three groups of people that he reaches out to. Jesus is going to reach out to the unbelievable, the unwelcome, and the unsound. And yes, as a good Baptist pre preacher, they all have to start with alliteration with a U, so you know that. But this is what Jesus is going to do. Friends, what I hope to do with this passage is to really look practically how this affects our lives as Christians. Because so often we say this phrase, but what does it mean? 
what we want to do is ask, whom do I most identify with in the passage? And then, am I loving and serving sinners like Jesus is in this passage before us? So with that in mind, would you join me and get your, your weekly Sunday exercise at this time each week and join me in standing for God's word this morning as we read Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus, a friend of sinners. He says this, And he, that's Jesus, went out again besides the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And verse 14, he passed by and saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And verse 16, the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. That is our goal this morning. And I pray that we'll learn what God's word has for us as we do. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray this morning? Father, this is a very uh, real topic in our church today because, Father, we live in a society where where Christians, even years past, the different eras of our culture are still considered holier than thou. And, Father, we desire to be holy. You said to be holy for you are holy. But, Father, I pray as we look through this text that you would grant us by your Spirit the wisdom we need to understand how to apply this to our lives, not just as individual Christians, but as our church corporately, as families, as ministries, as everything that this may affect in our church. Father, you were worthy. Thank you that you did not give up on us, Father. You called us even when we had given up on you, when we said we wanted nothing to do with you, Father. By grace, in Christ, you saved us. Father, thank you for saving sinners such as us. And Father, thank you as well for the realization that every church has sinners, but in every church, you are Lord as we allow you to be, Father, and you are. Lord, you are worthy. We thank you for these things and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. You may be seated. You may be seated. All right. So the first group we want to look at today, how does this flesh itself out? Is Jesus talks about how the unbelievable, Jesus calls the unbelievable to follow him you notice that Jesus is again doing his two favorite things. And we've seen this a lot over the last several weeks. He's teaching the word, he's preaching basically, and he's making disciples. Those are his two favorite things. Your Bible may have in verse 13, it may have the word again listed, and that's intentional because he's been doing this over and over. You remember last week, my, uh, my friend Brian talked about the, the roof being lifted off the house and how the, the friends had dropped the, the paralytic man down in there. Well, Jesus has now left the small house and he's moved out to the large fields where he could get to them and they could hear and get to him. And Mark notes that the crowd kept coming to him, but what did he do? He kept teaching. He didn't give up. He didn't say, well, we've hit our max capacity. Sorry, come back next week. No, he said, bring him in. Come on, guys. Come on down. The, come on in. Uh, all are welcome. And it says further, he says, he was teaching them. And as he passed, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But what I want you to see first off is that Jesus is out among his people. He's out among his people. Sometimes in ministry, it's so easy to be an ivory tower pastor or an ivory tower theologian. But some, the, the best pastoral advice that's ever been given to me is that a pastor should smell like his sheep. Didn't know you were smelly, did you? 
The pastor should smell like his sheep. What does it mean? What what is that saying? That means that the pastor, the leader, the the ministry worker should be at such a stage that they should be in the lives of people, not nosily, not overbearingly, but should be intentionally accountable as shepherding the flock. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not hiding himself away. He's out there with the people. He's to reach the lost. You have to be with the lost. It's kind of like if you want to go fishing, you know, my dad used to let me practice fishing all the time on the front lawn, but it didn't make an iota's difference. I couldn't catch those grass blades if I tried. But if I wanted to fish, I'd go to Smithville Lake, cast it out there, and try and catch a fish. Go to the spillway if you want some good advice for Smithville Lake. You always catch a gar. If you, always, if you want to fish, go to catch a gar at Smithville Spillway. There you go. Fifteen times in Mark, it says that Jesus was out among his people teaching. Fifteen different times. And in Mark, Jesus is a teaching and preaching machine. I mean, he's just, he's not wasting any time. He's just out there, preach, 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 preach. But then finally, he goes on and he speaks to one specific person. Verse 14, it says, And he passed by and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now, this is not just some random passing by in the, in, in the, in the text. Jesus intentionally is going to the unbelievable people of the day, the tax collector named Levi. Ironically, his name, Levi, means gift of God. And we know from Matthew 9 that this is probably Matthew himself, the author, the gospel writer, Matthew. He had been a thief that will now receive a gift from God that he can never repay. This thief of a tax collector will now be taken advantage of by the gospel. The gospel has arrested his attention. Now, why would I call him a thief? Well, I don't have to spell this out too much, but just for sake of clarity and history, tax collectors were notorious in their day, weren't they? Aren't they still today, I think? They were almost the abusers, the traitors, the everything that people hated in society. That's what these people were. They were farmed out employees of a hierarchical system that were like a mafia organization that exploited people in the first century. Because people were supposed to pay a taxes. That's a good thing, friends, by the way. It's tax season. Uh, pay your taxes. That's good. Jesus said, pay unto Caesar's what's Caesar's, pay unto God's what's God's. And they served Rome, tax collectors did, and they were the Gentile occupying force of Israel. Israel hated Rome with a passion. Take the chiefs to the raiders times infinity and you might get a taste of what it was like. These were dishonest tax collectors, like IRS agents, in a sense, today, necessarily, who overwhelmed the people for their own profit. They were expelled. They were banned from social life. They were uh, an embarrassment and a disgrace to their families. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean, according to the Jewish law of the time. The Jews could lie to a tax collector without any penalty whatsoever. That's how bad this blood was between Jews and tax collectors. They, with money as their God, Levi was a social leper in his day. He was unbelievable. And yet here comes Jesus walking by the social leper of his day. He was in soul in need of the touch from Jesus. And just to give you a little more history, this was such that they would take taxes. And many of you know this, but just for a reminder, they were charged to take, let's say, uh, $5 a person. I'm just throwing out a number. But instead of just collecting the tax that they had, they were given the authority to tax whatever they wanted. So if, uh, let's, let me just pick on someone today. So if Dave Edmonds came by and I said, Dave Edmonds, it's $5 tax, but you owe me $55, Dave Edmonds. Oh, it gets worse. It gets worse. I'm going to pick on someone else. Carlos, since you picked on me, I'm going to pick on you, brother. Brother, you owe me 155 And what did they do with all that extra money? Yeah, they kept it. Absolutely. 
They loved money. That's why Zacchaeus, in, in, in the account of Luke, when, he, when Jesus visits him, you remember Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he? And he says, I'll give back four times. You say, where did that wealth come from? It came from the people that he lived among. He was just giving back what they already were due. But he sees Jesus. And by calling Levi to follow him, Jesus once more commits a scandalous act of grace, an unthinkable act. How dare you talk to that man, Jesus? It would rival touching a leper, but in neither situation does Jesus let the social PC stigmas of the day inform how he does ministry. And I'm grateful for that because he came to call sinners to himself and he calls sinners he would. This is the first faith lesson Megan will put up for you there. No one in history, friends, has ever been more inclusive of repentant sinners than Jesus and more intolerant of sin. I hope you see that balance there. Jesus himself has never said to anyone who willingly wanted to come to him, no, you can't come. But at the same time, he said, I don't want you to stay where you are. You need to receive grace and be transformed in that grace. Jesus hangs out with sinners. I know because I am one daily and you are too. Only Jesus, full of grace and truth, can save hard-hearted, hard-headed sinners and empower them for a life of grace and truth. And that's why you're here today. You may not know that's why you're here today, but that's why you're here today. What every church on Sunday is for is for guilty, exhausted sinners, freed and revived by Jesus, to come back and remember that very, very fact. And according to Luke 5, 28, you know what, you know what he does? He just drops everything and follows Jesus. Wow! Friends, our gospel has power. Don't think that the gospel that you share does not have power. Well, that was Jesus, Darren. Yeah, it was. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he can take an unbelievable person like tax collector Levi and change his life, never give up on anyone who you think is beyond the reach of grace. Christ didn't. He gave up his lucrative business. And when I say lucrative, friends, I mean lucrative. You may have the corner on the market. The tax collectors had the corner and the monopoly and boardwalk, park place, and every, every train line in between. He turned his back on his former life. Levi saw in Jesus something that he couldn't do himself. He saw something in Jesus that he could and would become. Jesus saw a sinner who is in need of salvation, not a low life deserving condemnation. Jesus saw not a wicked life of a tax collector, but the changed life of a disciple, evangelist, and a gospel writer. Jesus looked past the past, so to speak, and gave him grace. He made the unbelievable believable. Can you imagine what that would have done? Just think about this. How many of y'all grew up in small towns? Less than 5,000 people. We've mentioned this before, but you know how time travels in small towns. Something happens, and you, they know it before you do. Oh, I said what? Oh, I did what? Oh, I bench-pressed 500 pounds. I like that one. Keep saying that. That's good. But you know how word travels. Word travels quickly. And Jesus looked past what Levi has done. The scandal of grace was complete. And Jesus sees in us the unbelievable people that we are, what no one else can see, all made possible by scandalous grace and the fact that he is a friend of sinners. Friends, is your gospel so short, is our church's gospel so short that we won't allow all people in? Now again, there's a balance here. Friends, we should have these doors open to anyone. These doors are open to anyone at any time, anywhere. Young, old, skeptic, believer, yes, even a Jayhawk fan, we might even let in to our midst. Amen. But I want you to know that the gospel does not end by the preferences that you have, that I have, that our churches have. 
And I'm so grateful that every time we hear a feedback card from most of our folks who visit our church, what did you like about the church? There's some friendly people there, and there are. Thank you for living and modeling that. Friends, but let's pray and continue to pray as we see people from our neighborhood come that you may say, so-and-so's here? Really? We would look at that and say, welcome so-and-so, whoever you are. Praise the Lord you're here. Come here about grace. Because friends, every one of us is an unbelievable testimony of what God has done in our lives. See, Darren, I've never gone to jail. I've never been drunk in bar fights. I've never, you know, jumped off a cliff and, you know, like hung on like cliffhangers and, and all that stuff. And, you know, like some people come to Jesus. Friend, most of your testimonies are, are what the culture would be pretty boring. You grew up in church. You know, you walked the aisle, so to speak. You repented. You believed. Yeah, you know, oh, let's hear about the guy that bench presses 500 pounds. Your testimony is incredible because it's unbelievable that the God of the believable would save you as you are. We are Levi in this story, friends, because we are in need of grace transforming that is beyond our reach, and he saved us not because we were good enough, fast enough, strong enough, uh, smart enough, social media savvy enough, PC enough, Republican enough, Democrat enough, independent enough, Green Party, Tea Party, uh, uh, Pizza Party, whatever enough. He saved you because of scandalous grace. Let's move on to the second thing we see. Jesus calls Levi, and please know that was something that was an effectual call. It was an irresistible call by God's divine plan. But secondly, I want you to know that he welcomes Jesus, not only the unbelievable, but he calls the unwelcome. Look at, verses 15, look at verse 15 specifically. He says here, and as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So we continue to see this very thing of people following Christ. There is something being said about the crowds are following him. Jesus is very popular. He's healing people. Even though he's among the sinners, people still follow him. But at this time, it's a different following. And we'll break that down in just a second. But the day of salvation is also a day of celebration. Isn't coming to Christ an awesome thing? Do you remember that day when you became a Christian? Do you remember the joy that flooded your soul? That's what's happening right here. Levi is throwing a party. He's throwing a big old party. And yes, probably with some of the money that was there, but he's in, you know what he's doing? Levi isn't just going, you know, that, that phrase, what happens in uh, Vegas stays in Vegas or whatever it is. This isn't some hidden party where they're going to go do things they know they shouldn't do. Levi is using money to bring people to his house to see what Jesus has done in his life. That's so much of a big difference. We now find ourselves in a house and he's sharing a meal, having a good time. And Levi has invited a large number of friends and acquaintances over to the house to eat and meet Jesus. Birds of a feather flock together and you, you, you have to know one. What is it? You are one if you know one or something like that, right? All these proverbial phrases you're getting from the sermon, free of charge. You're welcome. But Luke 5.29 says it was a feast, a great banquet. He must have owned a large house. Perhaps it was a farewell party, you know, because he follows Jesus with everything. Perhaps it was to celebrate his new life and calling. But no doubt, two things. It was to honor Christ, and it was to reach out to people about Christ. That's what he's doing. And interestingly, though, as probably it's, it's a rather large home because many tax collectors and sinners, Jesus isn't just a sidebar. Jesus is the host of the party. The tax collector, the hated man, was now reclining with people at his table. 
And friends, I want to speak to this for just a second about the term sinners. What does this mean? We say it a lot. We've said it a lot now. But sinners just simply means that it's a common people who do not live according to how the religious people think they should live. Hmm. It means the alienated, the rejected, those who were in need of God's grace. These were people who didn't quite fit the church crowd, the religious crowd of the day. These were the others. These were the outcasts. These were those who may be God-fearing, but at the same time needed grace all the more. Friends, they were amazed, and the religious hypocrites were angered. And the application here is very simple, is that bigotry of whatever, of any sort, is sad, ugly, and pathetic, and it's further evidence of our hearts. And you see that question up there on the screen. Friends, as we look at our calendars, as we look at our lives, if Jesus spent a lot of time with dirty sinners, why do we spend so much time in our safe Christian circles? For a guy who supposedly discriminated against religious sinners, Jesus ate dinner with a lot of them. He was, hashtag, you might say, equal opportunity offender, Jesus was. And the moral stewards of the day hated him. The forgiven sinners loved him. And and, and don't let your correctness distance you from Jesus and those he's called to love. So what does this mean? And there's some other notes I'll go to, but I want to be very practical with this. I want to give you like three points quickly if I can. How does this work in your life? How do you do this? I mean, that sounds so good. That's a great, you know, pastoral platitude, Darren, but how does this work? Let me give you three things, if you will. The first one is this, and we see this straight out of the example, is you are to incorporate sinners into your life and people into your life, but you're not to isolate. You're not to isolate. What do I mean by that? Friends, if you're a Christian in this country, you well know that Place matters. And when I think of a place matters, we know that gospel communities that are small groups, that are Sunday schools are places you need to be growing and be a part of. Uh, And that's great. That's necessary to grow together. But in the church, we've grown adept to making churches a subculture within a culture. We've changed the definition of countercultural to mean that we wear Christian t-shirts, listen to Christian music, and, and support Christian sports teams. And those aren't all bad things. But we even offer Christian business directories, like the Christian plumber can unclog the uh, toilet better than the non-Christian plumber. Amen? Maybe he does. I don't know. But the upshot of all this is that our Christian subculture is that we live our entire lives, possibly without ever even touching or rubbing shoulders with non-believers because we're so insulated, we're so isolated, we're so insular that we forget about the very things that happen out in the world. Maybe you aren't that way. Many of you rub shoulders with non-Christians all the time. But isn't it true that the complete isolation from the culture at large doesn't reflect what Christ is showing us right here? Christ was among the people. Christ was with the people. And as residents of the kingdom of God, we would do well to live where God's people are, yes, with Christians, but also to reach out as we do. How do you do that? Think about your daily interactions. Many of you go to grocery stores. I I assume you buy groceries at time to time. You go to gas stations. Would you pray this week, Lord? I don't want to live in a Christian subculture bubble up here at Tower View. Thank you for the encouragement that this brings. And we need to have that, Lord. But Father, as I go about my daily business, would you open up a conversation for me to talk about Christ? Would you pray that God help my heart to be open to the eyes to see as you remember the story of Elisha in 2 Kings 6, when this great army had surrounded them and Elisha's servant was at a place where he was fearful, as we all would be. Do you remember what Elisha prayed? He said, Lord, open his eyes so he could see. And do you remember what happened in that story? 
God opened his eyes, and around him were an army of angelic angels right there waiting to take on that army. Friends, I don't know where God may call you this week. God may call some of you just simply to go across the door and knock on someone's door and say, hey, I've lived by you for years, but I have no idea what your name is. Can I get to know you? You know, sometimes we get so motivated to, to do what the Moody's are doing, go overseas internationally when the greatest mission field is next door at the address right and to the left of us. Don't ever think that God can't use you to change Gracemore, Maple Park, Clay Como. My directions are off, but you know the idea. Friends, the kingdom foreshadows the coming kingdom and exists as a kind of apologetic among non-believers. If we're going to do this, let's not be so isolated that we do it. So what does this mean? Secondly, really, be a friend to sinners, not just friendly to them. Do you see that difference? Jesus here was a friend of sinners. He was among the people. And he wasn't just friendly. He didn't just go up to him at, at, at the cashier place and say, hey, how you doing? Great day. Uh, you know, spring training. The Royals beat the Rangers yesterday. Praise the Lord. Amen. Great things. And you check out and you leave. I think it's important to note he was not just friendly, but he was a real friend to those who did not believe. When we befriend only those who believe like we do, we communicate often non-verbally that only believers have value. We don't intend that. But when we say, all my friends are going to be Christians, and we often say, we, you know, I, I, I don't want to have non-Christian friends. And friends, please hear me. Please make sure you're the greatest influencers in your life know Christ, absolutely. But do those people around you know that you're not just in this Christian bubble, you're not in your holy huddle, you're not in your holier-than-thou-thou-whatever, that your arms are open to them? Each of these responses is an example of an anti-gospel at work if we don't allow others to come into our lives. Be friendly to people, yes, but befriend them even more. And the last thing, you see it up there. How do you do this? Be a friend and share the gospel. You know, there's a great movement among uh, evangelicals, and I am not a historian on this. Uh, Dr. Johnston, who will be preaching here on Saturday at our conference, will speak to this much better than I ever will. But uh, about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, it was very popular that you should become friends with people, the, the teacher said, but never share the gospel. You don't want to lose a friendship. Friends, the greatest friendship that you can have is going to share the gospel. It is. Now, be very careful with this because rather, you can't count the number of times I've been told by people that you can't share the gospel with non-Christians because you have to be their friend. Yes, the greatest friendship you can have is to share the gospel with them, but be careful. There's another balance to that side. A lot of people will get in a friendship with someone just to share the gospel with them. Do you see that? But on the flip side of that, you not only want to share the gospel with them, but you really want to care for people. Do you know what I'm saying? You ever had someone who used you just because of you? And you've thought, boy, did we really have a friendship or was I just to get from point A to point B in their career ladder step or whatever it is they're seeking? See, rather than befriending non-believers so that we can share the gospel with them, I would suggest that we befriend non-believers and share the gospel with them. The phraseology is important. You can be their friend and still share the gospel, but at the same time, they may not want to be your friend because you share the gospel. Do you see that? The gospel is offensive. And the greatest friendships we can have, the greatest way we reach out is to see that done. When we befriend something, someone, we can accomplish something. When we turn people into projects, though, we turn a friendship into a sales technique. You don't like it when a, uh, someone at the store comes up or knocks on your door, and they're friendly with you. They're asking you questions. You know how this is. They, they get to know you. 
Oh, and here they're walking through their sales outline perfectly, and you're just you're just bait. You're you're following it perfectly. You guys, how many of y'all been in sales before? You know how this goes. And they're walking through, and, and inside they're salivating, thinking, "Yes, I get another sale today." And then they come alongside and say, "Oh, for $199, you can get a Branson four-day stay for the rest of your life with no strings attached." How did we go from my kids to the Branson stay? How do you do that? Friends, our jobs as Christians is not just to be pet projects with people. We want to genuinely be friends, Christ-like friends to our neighbors who don't know Christ. But at the same time, it is not much of a friendship if we never take the time and take the time to pray and intentionally seek to say, Lord, I want to see this person come to Christ. Give me the words to say. And our Savior did that very thing. So Jesus comes and he does these things and he does them very, very well. So where does that leave us? Friends, let's recognize that every person is created in the image of God. Red, yellow, black and white, gay, straight, transgender, uh, you name it, unisex, whatever. They are all in Christ. Uh, Not in Christ, but they all are in need of Christ, rather, and they all have it. Old, young, decrepit, deformed, handicapped, uh, big, strong, ugly, beautiful, mistake-filled, sin-filled. They all need Christ. God has created them in his image. And if they're not a Christian, they ultimately need Christ. But let's treat each person as God treats them, as recipients of his grace. And as we offer genuine friendship, we'll be sure to share the gospel that is also very, very genuine. We wouldn't be good friends unless we shared about the most important life-changing truth with them. And that's what Christ did. All right, let's close with this. So Christ has welcomed the unbelievable. He's welcomed the unwelcomed. He's called the unwelcome. And lastly, And this probably hits home more than the other points to us because this is our crowd, the Sunday morning crowd. Jesus calls the unsound to him. Look at verses 16 and 17 in Mark chapter 2. Jesus says this. The Bible says, And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, you can just hear the tone, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came to call the righteous, uh, not to call the righteous, but sinners. In verse 16, we are introduced to a group of people that's not happy with what Jesus is doing. And they will oppose him, as you know, for many times throughout. These are the scribes and the Pharisees. They are those who were most likely those who were at home looking through the window, uh, you know, looking through the window. What are they doing in their house over there? What are they doing? You know, those type of folks, because they didn't like what they heard or saw. How can this man, doesn't he know, they would say, that we are the religious leaders? Doesn't he know that we are the establishment here? Doesn't he know that that is not how you're to become with other people? And they interrogate the disciples of Jesus to a point uh, in other places where they ask him several questions. How, how can Jesus eat with sinners? How can he uh, uh, have tax collectors come over? How can he do these rules and those rules and regulations? And before you see the answer Jesus gives, there's another question begging. Just who are the Pharisees and why was Jesus always in conflict with them? Friend, the Pharisees were the normal churchgoers of their day. They were the people, much like ourselves, who were faithful to come and faithful to be involved. They were the religious establishment. And Jesus comes and he shakes that boat so much. Sometimes when you do what God calls you to do, and it's biblical, it's humble, it's faithful, there will be people even within your own church that say, I can't believe you're doing that, pastor or whatever it is, stop it. 
We don't want that here. Many people in many places, there's a young pastor I shared about last fall, I remember as I was writing out illustration connections here, uh, and I'm grateful that our church does not do this. Thank you folks for modeling this so well. There's a church in the deep south that made the airways, and it came out to be true that the young man had invited a different ethnic group to come to their vacation Bible school. You may remember this, last July. And he was a young pastor right out of seminary, uh, and they had prayed about it. The church had agreed to it. They had invited these people in. They had the vacation Bible school. And the Sunday after the family night of vacation Bible school, those of you who know how that system works, the Sunday after when you're supposed to be napping for five years because you survived another VBS, the people had a business meeting. And they said, Pastor, you're done. They voted him out of the church because he had the gall to stand up and say, the gospel's not just for this particular race or this particular group. And they fired him and left. Friends, don't think the apple falls too far from the tree, even in the 21st century. We look at this and say, how can these people say this? This is Jesus. Don't they get it? How can they retort to him and say, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Father, guard our hearts. Guard our hearts that we don't become so religious that we miss the Jesus that is there. Friends, Jesus is not just a doting grandfather in the sky. We've said that many times. But Jesus is also the humble who said that he did not come to call the righteous, but to come and call sinners. And that phrase, after Jesus hears that question and the implied criticism is what he responds with. He responds with a well-known proverb as well as a statement about his own mission. This very proverb, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I came not to call righteous, but the sinners. Jesus uses a common sense proverb that even the Pharisees would have known. And he uses it with irony to expose their hypocrisy. And that's what he does. The Pharisees, they were the moral and upright. They were in need of a spiritual doctor, just as Jesus had shown to Levi, just as Jesus had shown to all Levi's friends and and hoodlums, if we can use that phrase, that were hanging around him in their eyes. But sadly, they did not recognize that. They had two spiritually terminal diseases that only the great physician named Jesus could heal. And in essence, Jesus says to those who are, uh, he says, to those who think they're righteous, I have nothing to say, but to those who are willing, I will take them in. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, let Megan put this up there for you. The only way you can know Jesus is to understand that you are lost. These Pharisees couldn't come to know Jesus until they saw the need for Jesus. You must see yourself as lost before you can be saved. You must know that you're spiritually sick before you can be spiritually healed. And you must know you're spiritually dead in sin before you can be made spiritually alive by our Savior. If you're here today and you don't know the gospel, welcome. Thank you for coming. Talk to us. We'll be up front. Matt and I will be up front afterwards as we pray and do our thing up here. What does this lead us with as we close, friends? Any good Bible study has application. I want to leave you some more practical application points as we close. Some simple questions to ask about the Bible text today. First is this. What does God want me to do? I know this is in small print. From this passage, what does God want me to do? I think you know the answer to this, but it's to love sinners like he does. Befriend sinners and spend time with them. And friends, that extends even to the body of Christ. This church is full of sinners. Your pastor being the chief of those, no doubt. This church is full of sinners. People will make mistakes. People will sin. People will do that. And how we build our community of round tower view around the gospel is defined by how we handle this very passage ourselves. This is not just about outreach so much, but it is about how we go through and make our words known to each other. 
What also does this teach us about God? It teaches us that he sent Jesus to save all types of sinners. He sent us on a special mission to call sinners to himself. That's why the church, aren't you looking forward to that day when we will worship with those crazy Aussies down under who have a weird English accent? Aren't you grateful on that day we'll worship with languages you will never know in heaven? Aren't you grateful that the gospel is not just you and me in middle-class America, in the middle of America? It is across the nations. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that God saw fit that he sent his son to save Gentile sinners such as us? Church, that's our greatest hope. What does this teach us about God? It teaches us that he's not particular to an ethnic group. He is particular to all those who will repent and believe the gospel. What does this teach us about sinful humanity? This teaches us that we all can be seduced by legalism and self-righteousness. We all can fall in the trap of saying, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, and expunge the liberty of other Christians. And some of us in this congregation have been given knowledge in areas where we need to spend a lot of grace and extend a lot of grace to other Christians. Some in this congregation need not to use their liberty as sin, as, as something that is free, possibly seen in Christ. We need to be careful. Because, friends, we are one step away from saying, why is that person in our church? Why is this person in our church? What does this tell us about Jesus? <laughs> wow, he loves me. He calls me, and he saves me because I am a sinner. And what does God want me to know? And I'll repeat it again, but no one is too, too bad to be saved. No one is too bad to be saved. Those, regardless of where you stand on capital punishment, regardless of where that issue is for you, those murderers on death row, whether you believe they deserve death or not, whatever, will chase that rabbit theologically another day. But do you believe that murderers on death row, rapists on death row, child extorters on death row are able to be saved? And we do. That thief on the cross, this is why you never give up on someone. This is why you always pray, Lord, you can work miracles. You can create the heavens. Can you not change a heart? Oh, Lord, I pray, raise up this valley of dry bones and save it. That's why, I, you know, speak very personally here, but I'm on a Facebook group for the Northland News, uh, like the Northland News Facebook group, not the, not the newspaper, but the Facebook group. And all the time, as I'm seeing things come across my phone at all times about mail being stolen and crazy things happening in our neighborhood up here, crazy things. And I realize I don't live in this neighborhood, but there's a lot of fear in our, there's a lot of fear mongering going on in our neighborhood right now. There really is. And, and, and that's expected to some degree. But what I am so grateful for is I am not going to let the news of what's on that face group define what my God can do in this neighborhood, in your neighborhood, even if it's upper middle class, gated community, whatever it is, God can change a soul. God can change. Let, okay, can I use an example? God can change Justin Bieber's heart. Amen? <laughs> he can. A Bieber can be a believer without being a, a whatever that was back in the day, okay? And I mean that. Friends, our gospel is not too short, or God's hand is not too short to save anyone. That's what Christ teaches us. And it shows us that no one is good, that they cannot be saved unless they realize they're a sin-sick sinner. You all know this. Let me close with a hymn. Uh, Gilbert, I, I got busy this week, and I, I was going to ask that we sing this, but maybe we can do it another time. But you know this song. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. If you know it, I'm not going to try and sing it. You can sing it, but I'll read the verses for you. Old hymn. 
Jesus, what a friend for sinner. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. This is Psalm 38, what Matt read. Jesus, what a strength and weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing, he, my strength, my victory wins. Jesus, what a help in sorrow while the billows over me roll. Even when my heart is breaking, he, my comfort, helps my soul. Jesus, what a guide and keeper while the tempest is still high. Storms about me, night overtakes me. He, my pilot, hears my cry. Jesus, I do, not re- I do now receive him. More than all is in him I find. He hath granted me forgiveness. I am his, and he is mine. Hallelujah. What a savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. God is good. Friend, I don't know what you take away from this sermon, but I pray, if anything else, you are reminded that our God is a friend of sinners, and thankfully he was because he has saved sinners such as us. Let's pray.